Today is Wednesday, February the 8th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Google enter into a battle of wits in the field of artificial intelligence with BARD, a conversational service aimed at countering the popularity of the ChatGPT tool backed by Microsoft. Google released its AI chat service, BARD, to select test users ahead of a broader rollout in upcoming weeks. BARD is powered by Google's language model, for dialogue applications with the acronym Lambda and will draw on all the information from the web to provide responses. This in itself is a big differentiating factor from ChatGPT, which can only access information from up until 2021 and does not have access to the web. Google's chatbot is supposed to be able to explain complex subjects such as outer space discoveries, in terms of simple enough for a child to understand. It also claims the service will also perform other more mundane tasks, such as providing tips for planning a party or lunch ideas based on what food is left in the refrigerator. Google didn't say whether Bard will be able to write prose in the vein of William Shakespeare, the playwright who apparently inspired the service's name. Google CEO Sundar Pinchai said in a release, Bard can be an outlet for creativity and a launchpad for curiosity. Bard seeks to combine the breadth of the world's knowledge with the power, intelligence, and creativity of our large language models. Google announced Bard's existence less than two weeks after Microsoft disclosed its pouring billions of dollars into OpenAI the San Francisco-based maker of ChatGPT and other tools that can write readable text and generate new images. Microsoft's decision to up the ante on a $1 billion investment that it previously made in OpenAI in 2019 intensified the pressure on Google to demonstrate that it will be able to keep pace in a field of technology that many analysts believe will be as transformational as personal computers, the internet, and smartphones have been in various stages over the past 40 years. A team of Google engineers working on artificial intelligence technology has been asked to prioritize working on a response to counter the success of ChatGPT, which has attracted tens of millions of users since its general release late last year. Chat GBT has raised concerns in schools about its ability to write entire essays for students. Google also plans to begin incorporating Lambda and other artificial intelligence advancements into its dominant search engine to provide more helpful answers to the increasingly complicated questions 
being posed by its billions of users. Without providing a specific timeline, Pinchai indicated the artificial intelligence tools will be deployed in Google's search in the near future. Bard will be able to synthesize complex topics into bite-sized conversational pieces. The idea is to increase the distribution of knowledge in a way that is understandable and can spur learning for everyone, including children. A sample prompt from the release included using BARD to help you explain discoveries from NASA's James Webb Space Telescope to a nine-year-old. The initial version of BARD will utilize a lightweight model version of Lambda because it requires less computing power and can be scaled to more users according to the release. This will allow Google to collect more feedback before releasing it to the general public. Both internal and external feedback will be taken into account to ensure that BARD meets the expectations for quality, safety, and groundedness, according to Pichai. The press release emphasized Google's commitment to handling AI responsibly to ensure it's both safe and useful. Google typically takes this approach, holding onto advanced AI services until they are certain it is ready for the public. For example, Google has a very capable AI image generator, Imogen, and an AI music generator, Music LM, which have both yet to be released to the public. The company did not mention OpenAI's ChatGPT or how its own system might compare with that widely used and largely admired system. Instead, it focused on what is said the new tool will be able to do. BARD is just one of a number of tools that Google has been working on, according to the chief executive Sundar Pichai. He revealed the new development as part of a blog post, apparently aimed at responding to critics who have argued that the company is lagging behind on artificial intelligence, which revealed a range of steps the company was taking in what it called its AI journey. Google outlined a range of AI features that will be coming to Google search tools. First among them is a new system that will allow search to better understand complex questions and provide detailed information and multiple perspectives. Google aims to be responsible in how it rolls out those new tools, and Google and other companies have repeatedly suggested that their artificial intelligence work is not yet public in part because it wants to avoid the risk that could come with rolling it out too soon. It's critical that we bring experiences rooted in these models to the world in a bold and responsible way, the chief executive wrote in the post. That's why we're committed to developing AI responsibly. In 2018, Google was one of the first companies to publish a set of AI principles. We continue to provide education and resources for our researchers partner with governments, and external organizations to develop standards and best practices, and work with communities and experts to make AI safe and useful. Whether it's applying AI to radically transform our own products or making these powerful tools available to others, we'll continue to be bold with innovation and responsible in our approach. And it's just the beginning. More to come in all these areas in the weeks and months ahead. We are all holding our breath, 
waiting for the release. FTC fines good RX $1.5 million for sending medication data to Facebook and Google. The good RX business model is based on an app and a website that enables users to compare prescription prices at over 70,000 pharmacies throughout the United States, including names such as Walmart, Kroger, CVS Pharmacy, and Walgreens. The Federal Trade Commission took historic action against the medication discount service, GoodRx, last Wednesday, issuing a $1.5 million fine against the company for sharing data about users' prescription with Facebook, Google, and others. Digital health companies and mobile apps should not cash in on consumers' extremely sensitive and personally identifiable health information. Samuel Levine, director of the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection, in a statement said, the FTC is serving notice that it will use all of its legal authority to protect American consumers' sensitive data from misuse and illegal exploitation. In addition to a fine, GoodRx has agreed to a first-of-its-kind provision banning the company from sharing health data with third parties for advertising purposes. That may sound unsurprising, but many consumers don't realize that health privacy laws generally don't apply to companies that aren't affiliated with doctors or insurance companies. The FTC's proposed court order still has to be approved by a federal judge, but if it is, Experts say it could ameliorate the Internet's rampant medical privacy issues. What did GoodRx do with prescription data? GoodRx is a health technology company that gives out free coupons for discounts on common medications. The company also connects users with the healthcare providers for telehealth visits. GoodRx also shared data about the prescriptions you're buying and looking up with third-party advertising companies. GoodRx privacy problems were first uncovered in an investigation with Consumer Reports. If you look up Viagra, Prozac, or any other medication, GoodRx will tell Facebook, Google, and a variety of companies in the ad business, such as Criteo, Branch, and Twilio. GoodRx wasn't selling the data, Instead, it shared the information so those companies could help GoodRx target its own customers with ads for more drugs. According to the FTCs, that's illegal. The FTC says GoodRx violated a prohibition on unfair and deceptive practices because it failed to mention that it might share details about the most sensitive parts of your life with companies known for privacy violations. In fact, the FTC says GoodRx actually lied to its customers by claiming that it was HIPAA compliant. The complaint also says the GoodRx falsely claimed that it abided with principles set out by the Digital Advertising Alliance, an industry trade group which asks only that companies get consent before using health data for ads. How did GoodRx respond to the FTC fine? GoodRx said that while privacy is a top priority for the company, sharing data in this matter is a standard practice, and it disagrees with the FTC. They said, we do not agree with the FTC's allegation, and we admit no wrongdoings, 
Entering into the settlement allows us to avoid the time and expense of protracted litigation, said a good RX spokesperson. While we had used vendor technologies to advertise in a way we believe was compliant with all applicable regulations, and that remains common practice among many health, consumer, and government websites. We are proud that we took action to be an industry leader on privacy practices. The good RX spokesperson said, the FTC settlement is focused on an old issue that was proactively addressed almost three years ago. However, a quick check shows that GoodRx.com continues to share information with Google and other advertising companies according to the Markups Backlight tool, which gives you a preview of some of the hidden tracking on websites. In fact, Backlight shows the company has added new advertising partners since the original investigation in 2020. GoodRx said its site technology was in line with its compliance obligations. Can the FTC stop medical data from being used for advertising across the Internet? The FTC doesn't regulate HIPAA. That's the purview of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Instead, the commission says GoodRx violated the Federal Trade Commission's Act, which created the FTC in the first place. The legislation prohibits unfair or deceptive business practices. According to the complaint against GoodRx, sharing health information without telling your customers and lying about whether you comply with HIPAA is deceptive and therefore against the law. This foray into healthcare privacy is unprecedented for a number of reasons. The most significant part of the order is the simple fact that it says good RX practice of sharing data for advertising is used. There's almost no protection for your healthcare data if it isn't being handled by a HIPAA-covered entity. Good RX sits very close to the healthcare industry, but it seems they've been skating around the outside of the pond and getting away with it. The FTC is putting a stop to that. A lot of people share a common misconception that HIPAA protects their health information. Unfortunately, for privacy fans, it does not. Basically, health privacy rules only applies to healthcare providers, insurance companies, and anyone who is working directly on their behalf. A company like GoodRx is not a covered entity under HIPAA in most cases. The only exception is the company's telehealth platform. That can be confusing because the kind of prescription data GoodRx handles would be protected if it was handled by your doctor or your pharmacist. And according to the FTC, GoodRx played into that confusion with a number of misleading statements. Good RX practices are commonplace on the web. Investigations have shown that just about every health website you can think of, from WebMD, BetterHelp, even hospital websites, often use ad tracking technology that leaks your health information to the tech industry. The proposed order sends a clear signal that the medical advertising status quo may be illegal. Because Good RX is so close to healthcare, it's not going to be abundantly clear to everyone that, that they're not a HIPAA-covered entity. It's a shot across the bow to businesses that handle health information which are not covered by HIPAA, said Clinton Michael, a partner at the law firm from Health Law Partners 
and former chairman of an American Bar Association on e-health and privacy. The FTC is trying to remind everyone they're out there and they're watching. For that matter, the way the FTC is defining health information could be a game changer in itself. If you go to five different websites trying to get a deal on insulin, it's probably a safe bet that you have diabetes. Until now, the law treated your web searches, app usage, and other of your daily internet usage information the same way. It would treat a record of the recipes you looked up for dinner last night. The FTC is trying to change that, which would be a massive disruption to the health business if it works. This is also the first time the commission has taken enforcement action under its health breach notification rule, which requires companies to tell consumers about unauthorized access to their personal health records. Microsoft is silently checking your PC for outdated versions of Office. Microsoft is pushing out a silent update that will analyze what version of Office is installed on your PC. It will send that info back to the headquarters. As the company state, it just wants to know the number of users still using Office 2007, 2010, and 2013. Support for 2007 and 2010 ended many years ago, but 2013 is expiration support bin in April of 2023. The update is listed as January the 17th patch on Microsoft support site. Its description reads, This update is intended to help Microsoft identify the number of users running out of support or soon to be out of support versions of Office including 2013, Office 2010, and Office 2007. This update will run one time silently without installing anything on the user's device. Microsoft says the update is safe as it's been scanned for viruses and stored on a secure saver. You also won't need to restart your computer afterward. For some people, older versions of Office are still more than sufficient for typing text into a document or a spreadsheet. Still, the lingering question is obvious. What is Microsoft going to do with this information? We don't have the answer as a company isn't providing it. Also, what information is it gathering in addition to the version of Office you're running? If any, again, Microsoft doesn't state it explicitly, so we don't know. It also doesn't indicate if it will leave anything on your machine after it's done its due diligence either. Obviously, Microsoft wants its customers to use the latest version of its software. There's a profit motive involved here, but also a security concern. Once products are no longer supported, they will remain vulnerable for all of eternity. A cursory search for vulnerability in these older versions of Office turn up a long list of potential issues. Still, it's also not hard to imagine Microsoft using this information to make an easy upsell. It was previously reported that Microsoft was testing ads for its own products in the Windows 11 sign-out menu. It's not hard to imagine a pop-up ad 
or something integrating into Windows. Admonishing you for using older software, of course there would be a handy link to acquire the latest version for a fee. If you're not comfortable with this silent update, you can always use Microsoft Troubleshooting Tool for updates. It lets you show or hide updates. Though it's not recommended you prevent Windows from updating, you can download the file with a search on Download WUSHOWHIDE. I'll repeat that again. Download WUSHOWHIDE, but use it at your own risk. WUSHOWHIDE is a troubleshooting app from Microsoft that allows you to show or hide Windows updates. There's a color film shortage in a digital world. Photographers and photoshops around the world have been struggling to get their hands on rows of 35mm film for months, if not years. 35mm color film, now a scarce resource, are being kept securely behind the counter under the watchful eyes of shopkeepers who shrug at this pitiful supply. Not long ago, the phrase, film is dead, echoed through dark rooms, photography shops, and studios. Within a few months of 2012, Kodak filed for bankruptcy and Facebook acquired Instagram for $1 billion. But as nostalgia crept in a decade later, that grainy film aesthetic became all the more alluring. Today, analog cameras are back in fashion. The hard part is getting your hands on film. Owing to renewed demand and supply chain delays, Photography equipment supplies around the world have been struggling to source rows of 35mm color film, the most commonly used format for analog photographers, amateur and professional alike. It's so bad that photographers are buying disposable cameras to extract the film inside when film arrives. It's like this treasures coming in. Staff at the UK shop Analog Wonderland said that over the past 18 months, they receive only one or two types of color film at a time from Kodak, compared to the usual supply of eight, and it's unpredictable as to what comes in. Many stores are forced to limit purchases to just one or two rows per person to combat resellers. A single row of Kodak Color Plus 200, a bestseller for new starters that cost $4.21 United States in 2018 now goes for twice that in shops and is being resold for as much as $8 a row. Kodak, which owned half of the world's market share in the 90s, hiked its film prices in 2020 and 2021 and plans to raise prices by a further 20% this March. The company said that the initial hike went in part to investments in production capacity. They also said they've hired 350 people since 2021 to help boost production, claiming to have double production of 35mm still film in the last few years. But even that's not meeting demand. The fact is, if Eastman Kodak stopped manufacturing color film, there would be essentially be no color film. Kodak had not anticipated the keen interest in film photography. 
The film industry has also been impacted by pandemic-induced supply chain delays, compounding the strain on Kodak's production capacity, notably a shortage in the steel used to make the end caps for film canisters slowed production. Fujifilm also blamed difficulties in procuring resources when it announced it would immediately end the production and sale of color favorite Fujifilm Pro 400H in 2021. The company started discontinuing some of its color stock as early as 2017, but low availability of remaining stock in recent years has stoked fears that they've made an exit from traditional film manufacturing. Sellers say communications from the company is unclear, and they're not sure which films have been discontinued. For example, Fujifilm Pro 400H still shows as available. The most recent communication from November 2022 announces that the company is low in supply of some 35mm color stock, but Seller says it hasn't been available in over a year. Black and white film has remained easier to obtain worldwide than color. For those who gave up looking for the film, shaking the analog's unmistakably look isn't easy. Some have started to retouch their digital images to emulate the film after being unable to find new rows. While photographers are struggling to get their hands on classic 35mm color film, some smaller manufacturers are trying to meet demand by releasing new color stock of their own. In the past year, indie brands Adox, Double Film, Sign Still, as well as small-scale German manufacturer Orwo have all released new 35mm color film. But for photographers who want consistency in their work, the shortage of the classic 35mm film stock is still a problem. While high prices are making it tougher to survive in the future of analog, the shortage also speaks to its booming popularity and hope that the industry may rebound. Analog will always have a place within professional photography. How did the FBI get a Tor user's IP address? First, what is Tor? Tor, that's T-O-R, short for the Onion Router, is a free, open-source web browser that helps people use the internet anonymously. By erasing your browsing history automatically with every session and encrypting your web traffic, using Tor can stop people and companies from learning your location or tracking your online habits. After downloading the Tor browser, everything you do in the browser will go through the Tor network. This network disguises your identity by encrypting your traffic and moving it through different Tor servers or nodes. And if someone tries to identify you based on your browsing activity, they'll only find the last server your data traffic moved through, making it difficult or impossible to pinpoint your identity. For people who want to keep their browsing activity away from advertisers, internet service providers, or websites, using the Tor browser provides privacy. Tor can also help people get around censorship restrictions in certain countries and can hide IP addresses. Journalists sometimes use the Tor browser to communicate with sources to protect sensitive information. In general, using the Tor browser keeps your information private, but Tor only conceals your initial online browsing requests. 
It's possible for your identity to be discovered by using malware to reveal your IP address. Using the Tor browser is completely legal in most countries, including the United States. The Onion Router is supposed to keep your web activity hidden from prying eyes. So how did the feds trace a Tor user? Somebody over at the FBI definitely has a method. But they clearly aren't planning on telling anybody anytime soon. The Bureau has somehow managed to nab the IP address of an alleged criminal using Tor, short for the Onion Router, as part of an ongoing anti-terrorism case. The guy in question, Mohammed Mamtaz Al-Zahari of Tampa, Florida, was charged in 2020 with attempting to provide material support for ISIS. According to the government, Al-Azahari is an ISIS supporter who planned and attempted to carry out an attack on behalf of that terrorist organization. Part of the government's case against Al-Azahari revolves around his use of Tor to make multiple visits to an ISIS-related website prior to the planned attack. The Internet's well-known portal to the dark web. Tor is supposed to protect your IP address and keep you anonymous as you surf. The browser encrypts a web user's traffic and then bounces it around through a series of relays, also called nodes, to cover up the trail of activity. Still, Tor has been known to have vulnerabilities that can lead to de-anonymization. All that said, it's not exactly clear what happened here. Somehow the government ascertained Al-Azahari's real IP address, which actually turned out to be his grandma's IP address because he was staying with her in Riverside, California at the time of his arrest, court documents stated. Since Tor should have protected Al-Azahari's real location and IP address, the question remains, how did the feds get this information? Al-Azahari's defense has asked the feds to reveal more details about their digital probing methods, technically known as Network Investigative Techniques, or with the acronym NITs, but that the FBI's lawyers are being pretty cagey. In fact, government attorneys seem to be doing everything in their power to make sure that the details of the Network Investigative Techniques don't enter the public docket. In many ways, this isn't all that surprising since federal cops tend to spend a lot of time trying to make sure that their methods and procedures remain secret and therefore effective against criminals. That said, this also isn't the first time that the Bureau's network investigative techniques have proven problematic during traditional proceedings. In 2015, the agency notoriously use its cyber skills to take over and temporarily run a child pornography website called Playpen in an effort to unmask its visitors. The operation, which lasted more than a week, was dubbed Operation Pacifier, led to the arrest of the site's creator, but elicited a backlash for its methods. A case against one of the site's members was later dropped when the suspect's defense similarly asked the Bureau to review the nature of the network investigative techniques that had been used rather than comply 
Well, the FBI moved to dismiss the case, preferring to keep its methods secret rather than successfully prosecute the site user. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we spend just a little bit of time thinking about, talking about, conversing about your time at the office, how IT can make you a superstar, or at least that's what I'm going to talk about this week. And I want you to think about these things. Some of these, you are going to run into limitations, but if you can leverage some of these ideas, if you can move some of these forward, utilizing what you have at the office, utilizing the infrastructure that's there, it might work out for your favor. Also, I'm going to I'm going to mention if you are running a company, a lot of these different things are really good for productivity. So the first one, and there's a number of these that come to mind for me, collaboration tools are really key for increasing the communication that's going back and forth between all of the members of the team at the office. We're talking about productivity going through the roof. We're talking about all of the different ways that we're reaching out. Yes, I, I know In you think collaboration tools. And, and what am I talking about? Collaboration tools, they're, we're talking about Teams and Slack and things like that. We're talking about video conferencing, but we're also talking about things like project management software. So you want to make sure that people are communicating with each other. Yes, there's going to be some of that goof off kind of stuff and people will chat uh, in these chats about things that are personal based, but that's no different than the water cooler. And the neat thing is the water cooler takes people away from their computers, takes people away from their desks, takes people away from where they can be productive versus some of these conversations can actually occur. And, oh, yeah, I need to be productive right now. So I'm going to ignore this little comment in regards to how was my weekend. Another area for tech and, and people need to really start leveraging this better. A matter of a lot of usage of data and analytics to start really putting together the numbers that really help you understand what the company is doing or what your role is doing within the company, what your department is doing. And I don't care whether we're talking about you're tracking key performance indicators. I don't care if you're talking about just visualizing the data. I'm talking about demonstrating the value of X, of Y, of Z, your work, the value of your work to the company. And X, Y, and Z can be something else. It can be the value of this project, the lack of value of that project. You want to make informed decisions. And the data and finding out the common threads within uh, all of these different things, whether it's a good thread or a bad thread, you eliminate the bad threads, you, uh, you boost up the good threads, all of this really helps. Another thing for using tech to really just stand out at the office, I suggest, and I've suggested this for a while, uh, somebody pointed out that you need to brand yourself, but you also need to brand your department, you need to brand your division, you need to brand your company. All of these different brandings all the way through leverage 
that idea that we're all really supposed to be advertising. You don't just go to work. You want to be advertising what you're helping with, what you're improving upon, what you're doing for the company. And this all helps you build this personal brand, this this idea of you being a leader. And that, that's going to help. If you are touting yourself, you're putting forward all of these different things where you're growing the company, that's going to help a lot. I also want to see companies work better with all of the different cloud-based storage and sharing tools. Teams has some of this built. Actually, all of Office. All of Office has this really built in well where people can work on the same spreadsheet at the same time, the same PowerPoint at the same time, as long as both people can access it at the same time. And this is exciting stuff. This is amazing. And it all has to do with leveraging the cloud. It has to do with making things so much better for that collaboration that I talked about at the beginning of this. So please look into this. There's a number of different things. I'm, I'm not getting into a lot of specifics. I'm giving you ideas here. The last idea I want you to think about is one that is a, a particular passion of mine. I want you to find ways to automate your repetitive tasks. I want you to find ways to move information. If, if you're putting out a report on a regular basis and it takes you an hour to prepare that report, you put out that report every month, but you need, you can spend four hours and automate it so you only need to spend five minutes. Your payoff time, your payoff time is a matter of four months, maybe five months, but it's, it's something that's going to pay for itself for the company. It's going to give you another hour a month back that you can utilize somewhere else. All of these different automations, even if you're you're doing just small little bits, even if it's almost a break-even automation, okay, it's gonna take me, it's gonna take me however long to do it, and the payoff time is gonna be four years out. Well, that's still something that you have improved your understanding, your knowledge of automating it, of making the company better. And yeah, five years from now, they won't, you know, it'll all be automated, but you'll also have learned ways to automate other things. It's an exciting world. Go on out there. Do your best to stand out. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Concerns about privacy and security of the Internet of Things. The research from Consumers International and the Internet Society explored consumer perceptions and attitudes towards trust, security, and the privacy of consumer Internet of Things devices. The survey of consumers in Australia, Canada, France, Japan, UK, and the United States aim to find out what matters most to consumers when buying connected devices and who is responsible for better privacy and security. Connected devices are everywhere, but concerns about privacy and security remain. 63% of people surveyed find connected devices creepy in the way they collect data about people and their behaviors. This sentiment is echoed throughout the survey, with half of the people across markets distrusting their connected devices to protect their privacy 
and handle the information in a respectful manner, 53%. On top of not trusting the device itself to keep data secure, 75% of people agree that there is reason for concern about their data being used by other organizations without their permission. The security concerns are serious enough to deter almost a third, 28% of people who do not own smart devices from buying one. Security concerns are as strong a deterrent as the price of a device. People have concerns about security and privacy, but do not know how to adapt and adjust device settings in a way that might allay their feelings. 80% of people surveyed are aware of how to set and reset passwords, but only 50% are aware of how to disable the collection of data about users and their behaviors. We see from the survey that a high number think that privacy and security standards should be assured by regulators, 80%, followed by manufacturers, 81%, and championed by retailers, 80%. 75% of people distrust the way data is shared. 63% of people find connected devices creepy. 50% of people know how to disable data collection, 28% of people who do not own a smart device will not buy one due to security concerns. Given the level of concern amongst owners and non-owners, there is potential for companies to use high levels of privacy and security as a way to stand out from the crowd and build trust with current and future customers, while at the same time creating a more secure customer Internet of Things environment. The results also suggest consumers are thinking about the need for more formal regulations in the market. It is likely that this demand will grow as information about the risks associated with connected products becomes more widespread. In response to this demand, companies should explore how to deliver assurances to consumers that their devices and services are helpful and useful without crossing the line into creepiness. This could help them build trust in connected devices among consumers and potentially generate a competitive advantage. Patents reveal voice assistants will spy on you, which causes mistrust. Customer watchdog studied patent applications filed for future smart devices. They showed how the voice assistants are listening to everything you say. Patent applications from Amazon and Google reveal their smart speakers are spying on you. The information will be used to target advertising based on your activities. Google and Amazon appear most interested in using the data they get by snooping on your daily life to target advertising. Consumer Watchdog said the findings were published in a report created by Santa Monica, California Advocacy Group, Consumer Watchdog. It says patents reveal the device's possible use as surveillance equipment for massive information collection and intrusive digital advertising. The study found that digital assistants can be awake even when users think they aren't listening. The digital assistants are supposed to react only when they hear a so-called wake word. In fact, the listeners listen all the time they are turned on and Amazon has envisioned Alexa using that information to build profiles on anyone in the room to sell them goods. Amazon filed a patent application for an algorithm that would let future versions of the device 
identify statements of interest such as I love skating, enabling the speaker to be monitored based on their interest and targeted for related advertising. A Google patent application described using a future release of its smart home system to monitor and control everything from screen time and hygiene habits to meal and travel schedules and other activities. The devices are envisioned as part of a surveillance web in the home to chart a family's patterns so that they can more easily be marketed to based on their interests. John Simpson, Consumer Watchdog Privacy and Technology Project Director, said Google and Amazon executives want you to think that Google Home and Amazon Echo are there to help you out at the sound of your voice. In fact, they're all about snooping on you and your family in your home and gathering as much information on your activities as possible. Appliance makers like Whirlpool and LG just can't understand. They added Wi-Fi antennas to their latest dishwashers, ovens, and refrigerators and built apps for them, and yet only 50% or fewer of their owners have connected them. What gives? The issue, according to manufacturers quoted in a Wall Street Journal report, is that customers just don't know all the things a manufacturer can do if users connect a device that spins their clothes or keeps their food cold, things like providing manufacturers with data and insights about how customers are using their products, and allowing companies to send over-the-air updates and sell relevant replacement parts or subscription services. The challenge is that a consumer doesn't see the true value that manufacturers see in terms of how that data can help them in the long run. So they don't really care for spending time to just connect it. According to Henry Kim, U.S. Director of LG Smart Device Division, ThinQ. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, you know, I want to go back to last week. We were talking about a lot of the battery stuff, a lot of like charging stuff and and so forth. Uh, Where do you think the world is going with this stuff? Well, how about where in the world are you going with it? Where am I going with it? Speaking of chargers, are are you leaving the country? Because Polaris, that's P-O-L-L-A-R-R-I-E-S. Polaris sent a clever little plug-in charger for world travelers. Mm -hmm. It's got three sliders that select whether its prongs will fit European or Australian uh, or UK or the rest of us in the US, Japan, and China. Uh, the socket fits those same prongs, but note that mm-hmm. for AC charging, mm-hmm. the voltage you plug into is the voltage that comes out. It doesn't convert the voltage. Now, for many users, the more interesting ports are the USB charging ports. Mm-hmm. Okay. Two USB-A and two USB-C with 100 watts power delivery. Okay, nice. Charging. Nice. Uh, yeah. The Polaris EQ100 says to Globetrotters, hey, you can take it with you. <laughs> <laughs> also sure. from the CES caboodle. Now, it's not from Michael Jackson or even Weird Al Yankovic. Uh-huh. Not beat it, not eat it, but you're close. It's heat it. Heat because it. it can apply a small heat source to insect bites to stop them from itching. 
I think he okay. Might that have explains the bug. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. He, he, yeah, he's showing me the box here, and there's a big old bug on. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Is that their mascot? Okay, so it so it it handles it like mosquito bites and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, neutralizes the irritant that the 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 bites inject okay. into. All right, all right. Um, Anyway, this one is small. You can keep the device itself on your key ring, and then you plug it into your phone mm-hmm. to get the juice it needs to heat up, and you apply that, and the app will help keep you from branding yourself. Well, what's the size on it? Uh, thumbnail. Okay. All right. So, so that, I mean, it's it's easy to carry around with you. This uh, yeah, it isn't it, like you it's know. It's got a loop. Huge, you can yeah, put, yeah. It, put it on your keychain. You'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. Until somebody steals your keys, and then you got to scratch because the itch is not going away. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the boxes that came in it that came in had a gimme cap, a mouse pad, a notepad, some mm-hmm. pens, and a drink cozy, all as escorts for some new super glue products from. Flex Seal. Okay. All right. The, 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 now, can you say it's nanoacrylic? Flex, <laughs> Flex, Flex Seal has, has, has been sticking things together for half a century, but yeah, and yeah. so is cyanoacrylic. Yeah. Uh, but these, these new guys come in both liquid and gel varieties. The liquid works quickly, but depending on your surfaces and their orientation, it may run. Okay. The, yeah. the gel's a bit thicker, less likely to run, but you may want to give it a little more time to set. And they come in several sizes, and you know, super glue, super glue. It's nice to see it in the Flex Seal brand. Very cool. So, so let me ask you. Uh, one of the things that that um, my wife recently got was one of those little uh, those little vacuums. Uh, uh, the little robots, uh, yeah. and, and she's been fond of that. Have you, have you seen oh, anything like that coming? Strange, you would bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> I got in. This is wonderful. It's a narwhal frio, F R E O. Wait, narwhal, it's, like like the animal? like the whale. Yeah. Okay. All right. But all right. without the H in the middle, it's a combination vacuum okay. and mop robot. It automatically switches between them depending on whether it senses carpet or a flat floor or how you've programmed it for the room. It senses mm-hmm. how dirty the mop gets and heads to its nest or base station, whatever you want to call it. It's tall, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where it mixes fresh water with floor cleaner to clean the mop heads. Uh, heat and a special cleaning uh, mold uh, shape thing kind of helps disinfect the mop heads. It can just vacuum, just mop, vacuum and mop, or vacuum and then mop. Yes, there are sensors galore. Okay. Yes, it is surprisingly clever, both taking care of business and taking care of itself. And yes, it is appropriately modest in its demands on both power and supplies, not to mention owner intervention. I can set this thing all night and it'll do it. And even Judy approves of the thing. And Th- that's that's yeah. uh, that's always amazing. Of course. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, the, 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 the Narwhal Frio. Um, you won't be using any non-robotic vacuum anywhere near as often when you have one of these around, mm-hmm. uh, no matter how much you paid for it, that big stick with the sure. heavy suction. Yeah. Uh, speaking of robots, you know, Ultraco Robotics sends several of their IoT products. We'll skip the remote control power plug and remotable dimmer switch because an event here made two of those sensors suddenly important. We lost power for five hours during a bomb blizzard. Yeah, we 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 talked about that bomb blizzard uh, yeah. recently. Yeah, sudden drop in temperature to single digits, mm-hmm. fifty to sixty mile an hour wind gusts, 
When power came back, the furnace seemed to recuperate, but the complex Honeywell controller went a little cuckoo, and we didn't know it until we woke up cold. We also lost our outdoor condensing tankless water heater to cracks in its two heat exchangers. I just integrated the Shelly Plus temperature and humidity sensor with their app. It also has a nice front face display, and I added their natural gas sensor with a color front ring and a loud beeper. The temperature and humidity sensor now live on my nightstand, and the gas sensor is plugged into an outlet near the furnace. By the way, if you care, I was able to coax the Honeywell system back to health with my deep geek trickery, but no such luck for hot water. Uh, For hot water, the Norwitz unit got replaced by a ream with similar specs. My homeowner's insurance, less deductible, helped with that and what the plumber cost and some motel nights so we could take showers that weren't only (laughs) cold water. Yeah. As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell. That's Marty Winston, who's apparently very excited about uh, some of the new releases these days. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The New York Amateur Computer Club has a presentation, Customizing Windows 10. Thursday, February the 9th, meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, February the 10th, at 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is limac.org. The Kingsbite Computer Club meets Tuesday, February the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. And for more information, the phone number is 347-278-7320. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key. And on behalf of the gang, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, Marty Winston, and Rebecca Mercury, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.